Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, and I'm going to start this episode talking about therapy, because that's what this episode is about. Um, My guest is Charlotte Fox Weber, who is a psychotherapist and the author of What We Want, A Journey Through 12 of Our Deepest Desires. And it was that book that inspired me to have Charlotte on. Um, I've had a sort of weird life, maybe you have too, of traipsing through (laughs) different therapists' offices um, and analysts' rooms. Um, I was a teenager, I can't remember how old, somewhere 13 to 16, somewhere in between there, uh, when my mom sent me to therapy for the first time, so thanks mom. Um, And I remember the therapist asking me what I wanted. Uh, What did I want out of my life? Um, And I said, I want to fall in love. I want to be in love. And the reason why I remember saying that is because he was shocked. He said, oh my gosh, nobody ever, nobody your age ever says that. <laughs> he said, they say they want a car, they want a career, they want to go to Princeton or something like that. But they don't say that they want to fall in love. Um, I was shocked that other people didn't say that. Um, perhaps it's true that not a lot of people say that at that age, but um, they're thinking it or they're feeling it. Um, and... But I I knew that there was a kind of a loneliness and also sense of pride around what I had said. And I have to say that that has, (laughs) that blend of loneliness and pride has sort of uh, mixed together uh, in many points in my life. Um, After that encounter, I had plenty of therapists. Some I left after one or a few sessions, like... I had one who told me I would mess myself up if I did porn and said that it was a terrible idea after seeing him for, you know, four sessions or something. I had another who showed up drunk to our first session, and I just had another who also just kept saying, how does that make you feel in the most cliche way that, you know, everybody imagines therapists doing, and it was, of course, a bit infuriating. Um, But then, also I've had therapists that are absolute liberators people that you know help me feel embraced and safe in reporting some of my difficult thoughts i remember a a recent therapist actually um who i don't really see since i've moved from the u.s to ireland um i have a few times but not really able to do that sort of cross transatlantic uh therapy but I remember the first time I went in to see her and I said, oh, you know, that I, I said that I had done sex work and she said, oh, wow, you must be a really resourceful person. Sex workers really know how to take care of themselves. And I felt like standing up and hugging her. I mean, what an amazing thing to hear from a therapist, you know, definitely better than hearing your therapist say, if you do porn, you're going to, you know, fuck your life up. Um, I've had a psychoanalyst that took thought seriously. I remember going into my first of two Lacanian psychoanalysts um, and the one in San Francisco. I just knew that everything I said and thought could be brought into the room. Like what an amazing thing to discover that someone was taking thought that seriously, that it wasn't just that my thoughts or even the errant ones were just sort of throwaway. There was no junk DNA, uh, so to speak. It was all worth something, all worth investigation. And then another psychoanalyst um, who I saw for two years who sort of took me on a real adventure through my own consciousness. So, you know, therapy is not always good, but when it is good, (laughs) it's quite profound. And, uh, I'm not trying to sell you all on therapy. Um, It doesn't work for everybody, but I do think that attending to your life is important. Something that Charlotte has said in an interview was, uh, is paying attention is a form of love. I mean, very well said, isn't it? Paying attention to the other, yes, but also deciding to pay attention to yourself. And one of the best ways to pay attention to yourself is to engage in the act where two or more gather in the name of doing good, in the name of love, um, in the name of that form of love, to have someone be there so you can uh, have a reflective experience. I think it's really powerful. And 
I've been thinking a lot about therapy because I'm almost 45. I turn 45 next week. Um, the week after this podcast comes out, I should say, which is, <laughs> it might not be next week when you listen to this anymore, but I turn 45 and I'm thinking a lot about what it is I want for my life. It's not yet half over. Um, I believe I live much longer, but um, it's heading there. <laughs> and there's so much to choose from in life. There's so much that I can do. You know, if I sort of look back on what I've accomplished so far in my adult life, and let's, we'll start my adult life at, say, 16. So I say that's about 29 years. I have way more than 29 years left. So if I think about all I've accomplished in that short period of time, and um, I, I may have much more than that, actually, uh, given what I kind of know about my death date, um, <laughs> from some people who have told me when they believe I'm going to die. Um, I have a lot more time. So what do I do with all of that? How do I direct my wants and desires? And so, you know, when I picked up Charlotte's book, What We Want, I was hopeful, you know, that these 12 desires would, that she lists, would give me some guidance. There's uh, to love and be loved, power, freedom, to create, to win, to connect, all of that, of course, is worth investigating. Um, so I'm thinking about it a lot, <laughs> and that's why I decided to have this chat with Charlotte and uh, also why I do believe it will be a helpful and illuminating conversation for you. I am turning 45 next week. So that means there will be, if you're listening to this before August 23rd, which is my birthday, um, there won't be a podcast episode next week. But uh, I did want you to know that um, I so appreciate everybody that supports this show on Patreon. Um, I appreciate all the listeners and uh, the ones who support it on Patreon, I always want to sort of give back to. So I will be posting... Uh, patron exclusive uh, recording of my book tour event with Will Meneker, who created and co-hosts Chapel Trap House, who's been on the show, at The Strand in New York City, where he interviews me um, about Hawk Mountain. It's a great event. It was a packed event, um, and it was the kind of high lit event because the Strand readers are, you know, big lit readers. Um, it was awesome. So I'll be posting that at patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib for patrons only. And I'll also be posting a link to a recent podcast I did. It's about a two hour long podcast uh, where all I talk about is horror and horror novels and why horror is so important. I love giving stuff to Patreon patrons. I love giving stuff to all of you. But every once in a while, like around my birthday, I have to take a break from posting a podcast episode. But I'll be back after this one on the 30th with a new episode. Uh, I'm very excited about it. I have recorded a few um, by now that are uh, they're intense. They're good. They go in weird directions, and I'm excited to share them with you. So um, anyway, this show is funded by Patreon patrons exclusively. They're the only people that fund this show, so listeners like you. Um, and if you are one of those listeners, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for um, going to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and supporting the show. And if you don't, uh, please do consider doing that today. All right, everybody. Uh, I'm so excited to share this episode about therapy and why we all need it with Charlotte Fox Weber. Here we go. Hi, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Charlotte Fox Weber. Hi. Hello. <laughs> um, so listen, I, I think we'll just sort of dive right in. One of the one of the things that is really exciting to me about your book and what you're doing is something very simple, which is that you're using the word desire, which is in a lot of ways, a word that's fallen out of fashion a bit, especially in the U.S., I think. Maybe it's coming back a little. 
but it is more of a either a romantic word or a psychoanalytic word that mm-hmm. sometimes gets sort of shuffled away by therapy. So I want to just like what we just sort of consider MFT therapy or something like that. So I want to right. talk about your desire to use that term because it really means something and it actually it has a different resonance for sure with people than just want. Um, even though want is in your title, but, you, mm. but, but, you know, um, but desires in the subtitle. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. So I, I quickly got con- concerned about the differences between different terms and decided that I was going to use them interchangeably. And I, I put a note in the book saying wanting, desiring, longing, yearning are all used interchangeably there are many academic arguments making distinctions between those terms, but I I felt so kind of oppressed by the language distinctions that I actually just wanted to be able to have conversations and, and write about it without getting completely frozen the way I sometimes do when I'm overthinking. But it says something about, about the words that they're so kind of alarming and confusing to us. And the etymology is fascinating. So desire comes from fallen stars, and and I think it's a really beautiful word, but it's also a word that has connotations, and we think of it as erotic a lot of the time, and as you say, psychoanalytic, and it's very Lacanian, and if you're not a Lacanian, it can be almost intimidating. And wanting can sound more immediate, but I mean, I think what's really interesting is to think about what these words mean for each of us, like what it evokes. So if you say the word desire, does it sound titillating and sexual? If you say wanting or want, does that sound greedy and consumerist? Like whatever the association is, I think it's fascinating. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, and one of the reasons why I'm pulling a, a part of this distinction is what, you know, for me, the word desire does have more of a a sort of mystery to it in the sense that it feels like something that's ahead of me. Whereas Mm. want feels really closely bonded to my everyday life. It feels like something that, you know, and I think this is the language of self-help, which I'm not against self-help. But I, I think want has a feeling of, I know what I want. And yet desire, and maybe this is the Lacanian thing, but like desire Mm -hmm. has that tone of how could I possibly know what my desire really is? Like there's a, there's that thing that's like, and you point this out quite a bit in, in your book, like we don't always know what, what it is we're going for. We don't know who we are all the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we, we have aspects of ourselves that are private, even from ourselves. So I think desire evokes that sort of gap for me a bit more, which is, I think that's the exciting aspect of it to me. And that you decided to, you know, have even an entire chapter in your book um, under that heading, even if you go and dispel it, <laughs> as you said, you did, you know, in a way, mm. I, I find that really interesting and, and useful. Yeah. Wow. I, I like what you're saying about want sounding closer because it, it also suggests lack when, I, I mean, that's the other meaning of the word. So if she wants for nothing, like if you're wanting, it means that you're lacking. Mm-hmm. And I think I, that can be anxiety inducing for some of us. Yeah. And I, I think also when you say it relates to star, the, a star later you bring up, um, or actually it's quite early in the book, you bring up, a, a, it, I might not say it right, but a fancis. Is that right? Which is the loss of a star, which is the loss of Aphanesis. I, I, It's one of those words where I don't know how it is said phonetically, but <laughs> I'm not sure if I said it correctly. I've certainly said it to clients and, and allowed myself to fumble as I say it, because I, I like your pronunciation as well. <laughs> yes. But yes, a fallen star and... There is definitely that feeling when people are lacking desire and and feel listless and don't feel like they want anything. Do you think that that lack of desire is, I mean, 
If people are experiencing a lack of desire or a loss of a star, it seems in a lot of ways that they're probably not going to go to therapy, you know, it, it, unless they, unless they notice it in stark contrast to having wanted something so much before. So like if someone had strong sexual desire and then lost all sexual desire, they might think, well, one, you know, if, if it's a man, you know, with penis, like, oh, I'm going to go and get, you know, Viagra or something like that. But barring that, maybe I'll go to therapy to see if it can like fix the pro- the problem. And I'm doing air quotes right, about those right. words. But if they just experience that as a sort of general tone of life, they might very well benefit from therapy, but not sort of go in. Is there any way do you think to sort of break through like, or, or is that not offenses? Maybe, maybe it's, or, or however you say it. I think we could call it on we, we could call it boredom. Mm. I think that it's a very legitimate reason to have therapy. If you're, if you're not desiring the things that are within reach or you're not allowing yourself or even feeling curious enough to kind of have desire. So that blankness, that kind of flatness I think can be an existential crisis. And sometimes people start therapy because they're not attracted to their partners anymore. And it it can be the concreteness of not wanting to have sex. Can also be an existential sense of not having desire to go to work, not having any kind of thirst for life. So I think it can be a symptom of depression and of serious boredom and I think it's kind of paradoxical because you have to take that seriously enough. You have to be interested enough in your lack of interest to get help for it. Yeah. That's always, that's always the sort of trick with these things, isn't it? Is that um, the very thing that you need help for often is erasing your ability to identify the need for help, you know, Mm. or even taking action. Like I, I think about just like, everybody knows that meditation is good for you and it does something, but people forget to meditate, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, and so the very sort of means by which you might bring attentiveness to your life, your thoughts and the rising and falling of thinking, you know, and, and all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. becomes forgotten constantly. So I guess I'm, I'm sort of asking, I mean, maybe this, maybe it's just not your job to answer this question, although you do sort of put a lot out there outside of the therapeutic setting, like what, how do you even sort of encourage to people to lead themselves to therapy or a therapeutic setting? I think finding out more about your own inner world and about the world out there is reason enough. And what brings someone to therapy is intriguing because it can sometimes be a very specific problem. And, and other times it's presented in a certain way of wanting to find out more about development or feeling frustrated at work like whatever whatever gets you there is enough to go on but I also think it's really interesting when people arrive and say I don't even know why I'm here (laughs) so you don't have to know why you want therapy you don't have to justify it you don't even have to prove why I, I mean very often people do they'll feel like they have to legitimize it in some way it can it can be mysterious for whatever brings you there. And then that is an interesting part of the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking about the second sort of round of Lacanian analysis that I did. So I've done probably four years of it. So two with one analyst and then two with another. And the second time I went in, the first time I went, I was in obvious crisis, but the second time I went in with a new analyst, I remember saying to her, I kind of just want like this adventure of like Mm. doing this, but actually that round, (laughs) those two years were like, I I almost, I mean, they were, I don't know. How do I frame this? Like they were too effective or whatever. Like it unrepressed so much that I started having like seizures. Like it was very, very like intense for me in a way that I actually had to stop because I was Mm. like, I can't, so it was interesting to me that that was brought on by <laughs> me wanting the adventure rather than before when I really sort of needed 
the help, you know? And wow, I, that is and interesting. I, I, yeah, and I wonder if that is actually like, um, you know, the times when we don't think that we need, you know, help or assistance are actually sometimes, you know, might be the times when we are in the sort of deepest kind of hidden crises, you know? For sure. And I think defenses are there for a reason. And sometimes, I mean, boredom, by the way, can be a, a defense. Mm-hmm. It often is. So if you're feeling bored by yourself, if you're feeling bored by someone else, like what is the defense that's happening? But also, I, we don't necessarily want to dismantle defense mechanisms at all moments. And and there are times when therapy might be too painful and I mean, I say that as a therapist, I think there are different ways that we can help ourselves. And I think the most important thing is to speak up. So if you are in therapy and you feel like it's breaking you apart and it's really unpleasant and not the thing that you want in your life, I say something, I say that it's actually not working for you. I think what's, what's upsetting to me is how easily we can replicate our our overly mannered, restrained ways in therapy, even if we think that we're kind of bold and daring, like how how easily we we hold back from saying what we really think to mm-hmm. our therapist. And I think that allowing ourselves to speak freely and say what isn't helpful can be an immense help. Mm-hmm. And so I think that brings us kind of to a very basic question, which is, why should speaking work? Like, why should it work at all to speak and to listen? I mean, when we talk, you know, the people don't really say this that much anymore, but referring to therapy as the talking cure. I mean, why should it even help to speak and to listen in such a direct, such a direct way? I mean, how do you, what's your, what's your understanding of how that even works? I, I like calling it the talking cure, although I don't really think that anything is a total cure. I there's I don't really believe in entire solutions either. Mm. I think sometimes the cure is realizing that a situation is disappointing or that mm-hmm. you have a limitation. So it can be a subtle, it can be a subtle shift that is still profound. I think that we're meaning-making creatures and communicating mm. and bringing fragmented experiences into a coherent narrative is hugely reparative and we we tell ourselves stories and we sometimes only understand our stories when we're telling a story to another person and I think we tell our stories and then we adjust our stories and the meaning changes and mm-hmm. when there's a safe enough relationship so that you can explore things and look at things in a new light conveying what's really going on for you and and also taking in another person's perspective on on your own memories and perceptions I think it allows for kind of coherence and cohesive sense of self mm-hmm. Do you, uh, so then when it comes to like what people don't say um or say by other means I'm I'm thinking of um there's actually a book called The Unsayable. Do you know that book by Annie Rogers? It's I don't know it. It's it's be I mean, it's a beautiful book. It's just a her chronicling her work as an analyst, um, mm. with mostly young young women and girls. And, you know, I mean what what she's what she does is like the sort of I say trick, but the method or whatever the tactic of hearing the word that's repeated again and again and kind of like pulling mm-hmm. or like sort of plucking that word, you know. Um, so for people that are just listening that don't sort of know what I'm talking about, if I were to say, you know, in a in a therapy session, like, oh, you know, I'm so over my ex-boyfriend, and then later I said something like, um, you know, uh, I I feel like I keep crossing over the same bridge. And then the therapist would say, over, you know. And it, sometimes mm. it's weird. It's the little key. It's from all this stuff just starts like spilling out when you try to explain why you use the same word twice. So right. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about in that case, 
it's like what's said or what like what's not said is being contained in this weird way and what is said mm. and it needs to somehow be cracked or shaken up a little bit or whatever i think this is a very startling like aspect of being human that that should even be true and you must encounter that a lot in what people say that they're completely yes. saying something else as they speak than what they've said yes so i mean i think it's that element of surprise and revelation and i think that we we keep our own secrets badly mm. and if if you've been avoiding an issue and trying not to say something I, it kind of comes out in in other ways and of course that can go too far in the con- reductive shrinky sense of analyzing every word you say or every body language gesture like i think i think it can be interrogating when people start to feel like anything they show is going to be used against them mm-hmm. and that's why it really has to feel safe enough to take those risks and it's it's a collaborative process of making small adjustments and fine tuning and sometimes that means respecting a defense and also respecting a kind of avoidance so if someone says i do not want to go to that trauma i i'm not ready to talk about it it might come out in other ways but not everything has to be said including commenting on what hasn't been said but i do think that there's a lot about the unsaid that that is profoundly significant the way the way it's significant in music actually the kind of note that huh. isn't played the silence yeah i love that i love i love the way you said that i mean i i'm i knew i always had to get psychoanalyst because i always would sort of not on per well when i was younger on purpose but as i got older not so on purpose i would always try to i would try and often succeed in sort of fooling my therapist yeah. like sort of leading yeah. them in a way that i could tell i wasn't being honest and also not mm. getting out because i really wanted to be adored by my therapist all the time right so which right. i think is a common you know theme but I thought, well, if I get an analyst, like they're not actually going to care all the time about what I'm saying. <laughs> they're going to mm. pay attention to the things I don't catch. So I can't do that. And it ended up being, you know, helpful, but profound. But I'm wondering about this, like what you just said, where you said, um, you know, I about this uh, idea of, oh, people need to feel safe that not everything's going to be sort of used, you know, mm. in that moment. Aside from knowing it might be too much to sort of push a certain button, like how do you select, how do you select, like what are your tools for selecting and distinguishing what you are going to sort of say back or bring into the room more when the, when the client, the patient, the analyst and whatever you refer to is, is saying to you, um, how do you decide what, like, what's your selection process in bringing it forward like? I, I try to respect and respond to the person sitting across from me. I mean, whether it's online or in person. So if someone really wants help with a specific issue, I I will do my best to look at that issue. But I also I also try to be genuine and say what I'm experiencing, what comes up for me. And I mean, that doesn't mean I have to go on and on about my own life. It it has nothing to do with the person, of course, but just being real, I think can be a a favor to someone. And and it can also be disturbing and alarming. So it's not always comfortable, but I think if you're going to go to therapy and look at difficult issues, then sometimes my job is to actually say the hard thing. And and be confrontational, but in a bearable way. So, I mean, there's always a push-pull. There's always the kind of negotiation of what feels all right and, and where we're going to go next. And, and it's a conversation in that sense that I think that mutuality is really important and feeling that it's safe enough to, to speak up and say, stop. Mm. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking about how that quality of listening must be 
sort of difficult to contend with when you're not in the therapeutic setting as well. I'm sure people say this all the time or some variation of what I'm saying, but mm. it's something that I think about a lot with my friends who are therapists or have some sort of similar role that the that there needs to be a kind of um it's not shutting it off obviously you don't want to shut it off because it's so enriching in your own life I'm sure as well but like to not sort of move into that mode when you're trying to have a different kind of symmetry with people in your life outside of the therapeutic setting I completely I mean I I find I find it much more comfortable to be in a kind of unvarnished dialogue than <laughs> than to keep it at a scripted level mm-hmm. so it, it's not I, I actually really like small talk it's not that I don't have time for surfacey charming encounters because I that's great and that can be playful and like bantering with someone you barely know about light things it can be can be wonderful when it feels genuine it's just when it feels scripted and kind of overly repetitive and it's somehow not acknowledged I find that very uncomfortable and Mm -hmm. therapy is a privilege where you can actually talk about what's happening in the here and now so you can say how is this for you in this moment talking to me or here's what's coming up for me as I'm saying this to you but it's pretty rare that we say that elsewhere I mean Mm. it's nice when we can but it's it's rare enough it might be awkward (laughs) to say if you're sitting next to someone at a wedding I'm feeling strange talking to you right now like that might actually (laughs) just be unbearable and I, I get that I try to I try to kind of be cooperative for whatever is required socially. But I think, I think it's energizing when you can speak freely. Isn't it interesting that like probably the only times that people really do that are when there's a a chance of a sexual encounter. Like if someone hits on you and you don't like it um, or you're having, or maybe you're on a date or something like that. Those seem to be the only times when you can be like, I'm feeling weird about this, or I don't like the way that you're talking to me or whatever. There's some sort of like weird approval. That's when consent comes up or, or intimacy maybe. Yeah. Well, and then, and then that's not interesting. Cause then like the, <laughs> the therapeutic space is like the guarantee of the therapeutic space in some senses is that it not become sexual is that not become right. sexual, even though it could have obviously, like I'm thinking about the chapter with, with Jack um, in your book mm. where like, obviously there seems to be some sort of strange, strange, sorry, maybe that's not the word I want to use, but it, intense erotic, like um, gesture that's happening, even, even though it's not sexualized exactly, like that's right. still there and it's still present um, as this, client of yours is talking uh, uh, with you about hiring sex workers, not having any sexual fantasies fulfilled by his wife, all that. And I think that, um, but somehow the guarantee of the non-sexualized relationship Mm. is what allows someone to report. Whereas, so, so again, then like when someone hits on you and you don't like it outside of a therapeutic setting and someone hits on you mm. and you don't you don't want it you get to also report in sort of a same way which is so interesting it is interesting uh, yeah and and there's a difference between kind of invading someone and having actual intimacy mm. of course but there's something about getting getting inside and getting closer and what that means and and eroticizing an encounter can be it it can be a way of trying to get closer it can also be a defense and a way of having having control and taking charge rather than tolerating the vulnerability Mm. so it, it can mean different things when when we start eroticizing something like that Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking like about like, just, you know, having done so much activism advocacy for sex workers and having been done sex work and thinking about how like so much intimacy is not personal, like how, like I would bring or generate 
was able to bring or generate intimacy in any kind of situation that I was in or multiple situations and that it wasn't something that I would rely on as somehow inherent in chemistry between two people, but it's actually a kind of move or something you bring to the realm of the interaction. Mm. So then I'm thinking about that in terms of the kind of intimacy that every therapist must offer the person sitting across from them, the intimacy of, of, of silence and actually just sort of seeing the person, you know, even mm. though you don't know them, especially the first session, just total mystery. Maybe they become more mysterious over time. I'm not sure, but just this total mystery of this person, but creating the space for intimacy with a completely unknown human being. Yes. I mean, it's so, it's so, strange when you think about how contrived it is in therapy <laughs> and and of course it's no guarantee and and there's physical intimacy and then there's emotional intimacy and what is intimacy i i think it's something about about taking risks and not just keeping it so safe that you say the same thing you've said before so i think i think it can feel like a failure if if I, as a therapist, just say these canned remarks, these shrinky, cliched interpretations, then I think I fail to facilitate real closeness because it's not it's not customized. It's not personal. Mm. Whereas when I can fumble and say something that's a little bit uncertain and can put something out there, like it, it is risky because because sometimes I get it right. Sometimes I might not get it right. And, and I try to write about that, honestly, in my book, like mm -hmm. that it, it's not always perfectly tied up with a bow, but that's when you get somewhere that, that feels real and connected and, and close when you allow for that surprise. Yeah. I was thinking about the, as you're speaking about the, uh, you know, your, reference to an inspiration from Winnicott and thinking about the idea of being good, good enough, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> not, not necessarily like, you know, knocking it out of the park every single time, because actually that's also like that much sort of um, precise perfection can also be damaging. That's a problem. Oh yeah. And, and Winnicott warns the therapist not to try to be too clever. And <laughs> it's a real problem if every remark has to be incredibly insightful and brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it's just too much. <laughs> Maybe for some, but not for me. No. <laughs> <laughs> no and it becomes a pissing contest as well. Totally. I, and that that can happen as well, like I, with the kind of the charm competition of like who's going to be more dazzling and impressive in this conversation. <laughs> and actually, that's where... I, being being kind of oddball and and getting stuff wrong and surviving that can be weirdly exhilarating in therapy. Mm. Yeah, I think you know you use the word surprise before, and I think that that's I think that that's such a huge part of it. Or also with with when you were talking about intimacy and you said risk, it's like the ability to be next to something that feels kind of precarious you know, um, and, and to endure it, even if that precariousness is something that seems boring, like it, mm. no, boredom is completely precarious for so many people. Like it's unbearable for so many people, yeah. you know, yeah, or like a, is. you know, a quiet moment between two human beings or whatever can feel like an absolute disaster for so many people. So I, I really like completely. that you're yeah, framing it that way. I mean, a lot of us feel a huge shame around boredom. Mm. And sometimes that's been socialized into us, like, you know, the line that adults say to children of only boring minds are bored. Right. Like, we feel that we should be interested in everything and that we should be interesting. And the pressure of that is gargantuan. Mm. Mm -hmm. And but, you know, before you said something about serious boredom, you talked about like, though, there's a serious boredom that might bring someone mm. in. And I think, again, like there's a chance of boredom becoming like super productive or just mm. not productive, but actually just sort of being an aspect of 
life and then boredom which can be threatening to somebody yes how do you draw those lines so I mean I'm in favor and as I was saying the boredom thing I found myself thinking but we should still try to be interested and interesting (laughs) and I'm I'm just going to own that I'm contradicting myself but I, (laughs) I think that it's about surviving those moments of boredom and being able to call it and and then turning the page so it's not just kind of giving into boredom and staying there and dwelling there, blah, 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 the end. I, I think that is actually really problematic. And I think that being astonished by life is a really, really important thing. And and one of the things that I try to cultivate, I'm just finding the beauty and joy and sorrow and, and seeing what's fascinating and rich about life but I think that honesty emotionally sets us free to some extent so being able to just recognize that actually you are bored by a situation or you are boring yourself in what you're saying because you're telling the same story in the same way Mm. that's interesting we can be interested in boredom in that way and we're often boring when we're, yeah, playing it safe and saying the same thing over and over again, but without really engaging, without really paying attention. So if every time someone asks you about your job, if you answer in the same way, in the same kind of monotonous voice, and you look away and kind of go into robot mode, I, that's really interesting. Because I, what's going on there that you're kind of saying the same line, saying it in the same way. So I think I think that boredom can be a, an important step in re-engaging with life. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting about why you're what you're saying there for me is that like let me just take this might be a little Rube's Goldberg machine till I get to my point, but let me see if I can do it. <laughs> um, okay. Of uh, like I'm thinking about how there's this, I was thinking about when you're talking about intimacy, how there's this kind of um, intellectualized condemnation of prearranging erotic and relational encounters through apps, through pornography, whatever, where people, when you're on the app, you're looking for the exact kind of person that you like, and therefore you're sort of closing off the possibility of meeting a true other that is, you know, and really meeting a person or like if you're watching pornography and you're getting super specified, maybe you're not letting a range of sexuality come in. But as you're speaking now, I'm sort of thinking, well, is that actually maybe some of the stigma against some of that or the sort of consideration of that is because obviously it's celebrated in some ways too, but maybe there's, that's actually a a stigma or a, a condemnation of a kind of boredom that actually we could learn something about if we learn like, well, why are you repeating these kinds of traits in a person when you're looking again and again? And instead of saying, it's not good for you to do that, say, well, okay, that's generating a kind of narrow passage for intimacy to occur for you or a kind of comfort or a kind of relationship to a sort of boredom, a sort of repetition that is actually good for you in a lot of ways maybe we can expand the optionality, you know, Mm. together through some kind of conversation or, Mm. or broaden the desire set or what's possible, but it so often gets condemned. And I always find that for me, I find that a bit distasteful that it gets condemned merely because it's repetitive and sort of corralling. Uh, You're, you're so right. And repetition is, is part of the human condition Mm. and it's how we learn practice and repeat and yes we get stuck but I think understanding that stuckness is very important and and also it's compassionate and rather than judging ourselves and judging each other as as you just said in in such a kind way I can exploring what it's about and what the benefit is makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense yeah Uh, so you did say like in this um in an interview you gave about, um, oh, so lovely the way you said it, that you think of therapy as it related to Paul Klee a bit, who says, you know, when I make Mm. art, I take a line for a walk. 
and you know when when someone comes in they can sort of take a a point or a thought or a feeling for a walk meaning it can wander it can go where it wants mm. um i wonder if like what the what the um, how do i say this in a therapeutic setting that has one effect but say like you just are talking to someone at a party and you allow the conversation to go wherever it wants. And that can be so exhilarating or like we said, mm. it can be boring or whatever. Why allow that kind of, why take that kind of freedom seriously in the therapeutic setting as the, I don't want to say the essence, but like the, this good effective thing that's happening. I feel like it happens a lot in our lives but why should it get so amplified? I agree with you completely. So if mm. I sound like I disagree, I don't, I don't at all. But the, I, I'm just sort of thinking it and mulling it over as like that principle of freedom is so important and maybe mm. like actually the essential aspect of sitting in the room is the, actually yes. that freedom. Oh, well, I mean, I think in different areas of life, like think of a great conversation you've had. It It, it is the line that you take for a walk because you don't necessarily go in a chaotic out of control stance. But if you, if you know every word you're going to say and how you're going to say it, it's probably going to be awkward and you can prepare in certain ways, but there is something creative about uncertainty and not knowing where you're going to end up. And, and actually it's how you can discover richness and, how you come across gold. So in therapy, when you have distractions removed and it's just about that conversation, it's it's so amplified and kind of illuminated in a way that, that really tells you a lot about how you relate to yourself and others in the rest of your life. It's not just that it's a laboratory that sits apart from the rest of your life. I think therapy is a microcosm and a, a really helpful way of examining what goes on elsewhere. But it it allows for a kind of consideration without all of the obstructions and distractions and kind of chatter that happens in our busy lives. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking about how that kind of freedom can even lead you to sort of love the things that normally you would say you weren't into or you weren't up for. So I'm thinking of this early chapter in the book where you're um, talking with uh, this woman, Tessa, who's in the hospital. She's sort of reaching the end of her life and she's ill and, and, and older. And she says this thing, which I really like, as I read the rest of the book, I kept finding myself coming back to this one little turn of phrase, which she says with some, a sigh, no one teases me now that I'm ill. And I, mm. I kept thinking about like the framing, you know, that, that lament that like the framing of something that you wouldn't necessarily want, you would think you wouldn't necessarily want in your life mm. but, and how certain kinds of responses displace others. So that pity displaces teasing, which makes you mm. long for being teased and when you're being teased, maybe you wanted a little more pity. And I just find that yes. so interesting. That I'm so glad that, that spoke to you. Mm. And uh, yeah, being teased can be, it can be sadistic and it, it can go way too far, but it can also be a, a way of showing affection. And sometimes we feel deeply known when we're teased. Mm. Yeah, because I was thinking about it later too, when you're finding there's a tension between <laughs> attention, I'm just funny I'm saying that. There's a tension between the chapter about attention and about wanting to win, about mm. wanting attention and wanting to win, because people have no trouble saying they want to win, which obviously, well, they might, they might have trouble talking about wanting to win, but they mm. have trouble talking about wanting attention, but obviously to win is a way to garner lots of attention. <laughs> and so I was just thinking right, about like right. in the same way that teasing and pity kind of crowd each other out or like you only get to sort of hold mm. one at a time or something like that. It's the same yeah. thing with attention and wanting to win. 
I think with all of the desires that I describe in my book, I I think it's really important to allow for dosage and not mm-hmm. expect total absolute fulfillment. Because I like the stars, you look up at the stars, but you don't get there. You don't you don't acquire the stars. You mm-hmm. don't have them. And you can still see the stars without really entirely even explaining them away. And I think that desire sometimes is mysterious like that, where we don't even have to expound exactly why we feel a particular longing. We can absolutely explore it and and look at different aspects of desire. It's not about shutting it down, but I think I think that we can tolerate a little bit of mystery. And actually that can be a really inspiring part of life when we realize that we don't have to, we don't have to fix these issues that we don't have to get rid of conflict. We can, we can embrace the conflict. So that tension that you described, I I think it's a good tension in a certain Mm -hmm. way, Mm -hmm. but I think winning is an interesting one because I, I'm not sure that we are so comfortable at admitting the ways we want to win when it's not official. So we're comfortable at wanting to win a sport, maybe wanting to win a prize. And even then, I, some of us more than others, it can be hard to talk about, but it's really hard to talk about wanting to win a weird competitive rivalry you have with a friend where you want to one-up that person and feel superior. And it might be about something very subtle, but you want to prove that you know more about a subject or that you're funnier or that you are cooler and are able to talk to strangers more effectively like whatever it is we come up with these odd ways of keeping score and Mm -hmm. these unofficial games and I think it can be it can be problematic when we're pushing ourselves and feeling pressured by these by these goals that are so hidden Mm. well and and also like with winning, it's that thing where if I can say I want to win something, if if there's some, you know, contest or whatever, and I say, I want to win, I want to win, I want to win. And then I win, there's this like sort of weird burst. But then after that, talking about having won is a whole other complication that people <laughs> can't necessarily pull off, right? So it's like, we have trouble talking about having won, even if the whole climb of that mountain was, I want to win. I want to win. I want to win. I won. And there's that moment of like applause and acceptance and excitement. And then afterwards it's like, Oh yeah, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, it's this sort right. of yeah. awkward. And, and we're given mixed messages as well. I mean, I, striving can be a lot more comfortable struggling than actually allowing for mm. a kind of lasting victory. And, and I think we're, we're in motion as human beings and tolerating that is important not thinking that we have to kind of get to some final destination yeah and you know there's that that brings us though to like the sort of big critique of therapy i think which is has its uses and i think needs to be answered again and again which is like well aren't aren't you i mean i'm not saying this because i've done therapy but (laughs) aren't you saying that we just need to like be unhappy and so therefore the conditions of the world become unfixable I mean that's been the sort of leftist critique of therapy for a long time you know I I think that it's important to get a move on and make adjustments it's just that those adjustments can be can be small and subtle so Mm. it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to leave your family and leave your job and go backpacking around the Himalayas. Although if you want to, that's great. But sometimes it's about redefining something for yourself in your everyday life immediately. It could mean allowing yourself to play more. It could Mm -hmm. mean carving out five minutes of freedom in the life you're already living, but making a shift. So I, I don't, I don't think that therapy should just kind of yank people into a place of despair and then leave them there. I, I'm not in favor of that. Having had plenty of that type of therapy myself, mm. that that does not seem 
adequate to me. And I'm too restless for that type of therapy. And I think that joy is also very important along with sorrow, but I think it's something about expansion and permission and Mm. encouragement and, and allowing yourself to, to make those small shifts that can actually be incredibly helpful. Yeah. I like what you say when you say expansion, like in some ways it's about letting more of the universe in like, or the cosmos in, in a way. like it's, if I, if I allow more of what it what exists to, to really be with me, to be in me and to be seen by me, then I think in some ways, you know, in, in, in a way that doesn't require sort of a radical break in my personality to be able to, you know, see it. So um, if that makes sense. I think, yeah, I mean, I'm just sort of thinking about all the ways in which um, people resist therapy and, and all that. And I, I mean, I think your book goes a long way to sort of addressing that merely by the fact of being like, look, (laughs) don't you want these things? And don't you want to understand a little bit more about (laughs) why you want these things and why they might vex Mm -hmm. you or follow you. But, you know, I live in Ireland and there's definitely that sort of like, well, you know, let's just get on with it. Let's just get on with life. That's how it is. And, and and all that. And I, and I, and I won't do this. And I, I have a, I have a little bit of a theory about that, but I'll, maybe I'll save it until I let you respond to the sort of <laughs> that kind of psyche, whether it's in Ireland or, or, or elsewhere, you know, that think, God, just, let's get on with it. I mean, mixed messages in every culture, but I think that there's also resistance in every culture. And sometimes people who have had a lot of therapy, I'm definitely one of these people. I I'm sometimes very resistant and I kind of hide and seem like I'm, I'm I'm very psychologically minded, but that doesn't mean I can't also be resistant. And mm. I I like those surprises because again, someone can come to therapy who who says, and I actually love this as a beginning, like cross-armed and kind of grumpy, like I'm not sure about this whole therapy thing. I, I'm, what good is it going to do? And then there can be really fascinating breakthroughs and discoveries mm. and a kind of openness and willingness. So I think the human mind is is deeply layered and interesting. And being curious about that brings us alive. And and I hope in my book that I also help certain readers who may not be ready for therapy or maybe therapy is unaffordable or you don't know where to begin in finding the right therapist. Or you're not sure you want to con- confront dark corners of your mind. I think sometimes seeing what goes on for other people is a helpful way in. It's it's con- getting support by actually witnessing the lives of other people. I, it can just be too much to kind of face ourselves and and go first. So mm-hmm. allowing allowing yourself to kind of see what's out there that actually people from all walks of life are struggling in in huge ways and also getting help and, and making changes. I mean, I begin the book with a woman on her deathbed who was incredible for me. I mean, I learned a great deal from her. She, she was able to, to make changes up until the very end. So I think something is always possible. Yeah. I mean, I love that because I'm thinking about, a lot of people that I've met since moving here whose attitude toward therapy is something like, well, I don't want to look at that dark stuff, you know, that's mm-hmm. like in me, which is weird because they're acknowledging that it's there, <laughs> but it's, right. but they're either blowing it up to be bigger than it actually is, you know, and, and less surmountable mm-hmm. or more, you know, less surmountable than it actually is, or they're, maybe not realizing that they're carrying around the effects of it all the time anyway. So why not look at it? You know, um, it's right. not as if it's not as if it leaves you because you don't <laughs> look at it. And obviously if you think it's that serious, then it's doing something in you, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it can be strangely comforting to to look at the darkness and realize that you can you can survive it. And and not looking at something does make it bigger a lot of the time. Yeah. If you're running away from some part of yourself, then it it becomes that thing you dread and it can it looms. Maybe to take this to the place of um the ego, you know mm, my favorite I, subject. Yeah. And something I really appreciate about what you say again and again is like, look, the ego is not bad. And a lot of us have been, you know, sort of encouraged to even to like not even experience individuation in a weird way. <laughs> like even yeah, that might yeah. be sort of a dirty word in some places. And for me, that's so important. Mm. Um, the 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 strength and the honoring and the appreciation of the individual. And why do you think that that is so conflated with this sort of selfish, consumerist way of being, you know, because I don't think it's that at all. And neither do you. And I'd just like to hear that sort of fleshed out a bit. I I think ego is our amigo. But (laughs) I think that I think that we are freaked out by it. For one thing, it's a very badly defined term so psychotherapists are are partially responsible for confusing matters and like getting lost in different definitions of what ego means I, for simplicity i think ego means self i like the, it comes from i in latin and it's not the same as narcissism it's it's actually a kind of sense of self mm-hmm. and i think if you if you recognize that you are someone and that you, that you matter, you can advocate for yourself. And it doesn't mean that you have to then be overbearing or kind of overpower everyone else or claim superiority and shut down learning. Like I I think a healthy ego Mm. can, can recognize limitations and can learn from others, but it's, it's some sense of, knowing that your existence is important in a way. Mm-hmm. And when I say in a way, we don't have to fully entirely justify and defend that. But I think it's interesting that we're so adamant about self-care, self-esteem, mm-hmm. self-confidence, mm-hmm. self-worth, self-respect, but then ego like banished. Mm-hmm. It's somehow gotten a really unfair reputation. And we're told like, too much ego, do away with the ego, like get rid of the ego. I'm I'm not sure that's even possible. And I think it's really problematic if we try to, because that's when we stop having clarity about, about what we want. And then we can ask for things sideways or we don't ask for things. And then we're hugely mm. frustrated or we start serving others and sacrificing ourselves. And then we build a resentment debt. Mm. Yeah, it's really, it's really a weird, like, I think about the sort of crossovers and conflicts between therapy and analysis and, and Buddhism a lot, like, um, you know, like, Slavo Zizek, you know, so Lacanian, like, very staunchly sort of, like, has taken so many stances against Buddhism in a lot of ways, and I see mm-hmm. why he does it, because there is this sort of ego piece where, you know, mindfulness which has its uses and i'm so glad that people have access to it and it's widespread but mindfulness which is in a sense sort of deeply limiting the scope of the ego to what it can attend to in the present moment is what like they teach you mindfulness when you go into the marines or the navy seals to be Mm. able to kill because all you're observing is the sort of disjointed moments of experience. Now I'm pulling the trigger. Now the bullet's flying out of the gun. Now whatever, whatever, whatever. Right. Whereas right. if you have an ego that's actually strengthened to the point where you can really reflect on your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions as a sort of full picture, that's actually quite that that's quite opposed to that and much more difficult, I think, to sort of pull something off like yes killing another person 
Completely. But also, I mean, I think, I think it keeps things more calibrated in a certain way. So if you have a healthy ego in the workplace, for instance, then if you, if you have an opportunity to advance your career and it's something that you know you want, you can be straightforward about it. If you have been conditioned to kind of do away with your ego and only serve others, then I think that's where a kind of resentment tax can start to build. And you might think, no, you don't need to advance your career. You don't want the promotion, even though your line manager has said that you have a good chance of getting it. You are happy to help your colleague advance his career instead. And you feel too embarrassed to even admit that actually you have another part of you that longs for more power, whatever it is. Like I, we start confusing ourselves and talking ourselves out of things. And that doesn't mean we have to be like brassy and hideous and just elbow each other out of the way. But I think that being, being real with ourselves, again, it can sometimes be private as well. Like just admitting to yourself in therapy or with a close friend or just in your own mind, actually, I do want this. I might not get it, but this is something I want to go for. I, I think that is profoundly life-changing. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm thinking about that in terms of love, where people tend to sort of pit the concept of love against all these desires, these wants that you list in your book, like as if, you know, love is opposed to, you know, love would banish understanding the need for it to be understood. It banishes the, the longing for power, the longing for attention. But yeah. Like, love that's conquers a, all. But that, right. see, that's actually like a, I mean, love probably does conquer all, but does conquer is like not that fragile version of it that right. people are using. Cause if it's right. opposed to these things, then it must be fragile that it can actually stand in their presence. But if it's real love or real engagement with the ego, it can absorb mm. these wants and desires. It can handle them and infuse them, not, Mm. need them to be out of the room in the same way that when you set a real boundary, like you're not afraid of, it's like, you know, oh, I can never be friends with that person again. I can never see them again. That's actually a really fragile boundary, not a right, strong right. boundary, you know. What doesn't bend breaks. And yes. yeah, I think, I think being flexible and not being overly rigid goes a very long way. And and I think that applies to all of our desires and wants, actually, in the 12 chapters. Like, I think defining things for ourselves, love changes as well. Like, what love means to you at 20 is going to be different when you're 60. And I think updating what it means is also really kind of liberating and generous so like freedom is a big one for that like the freedom that you want when you're a child is not necessarily the freedom that's that's within reach or that would really work for you when you're 30 and I, you might have some exaggerated sense of what freedom looks like that is still childlike that's fine but actually looking at how freedom can 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 play out in the life you're living now it requires fine tuning. So defining things for ourselves and, and being flexible is really helpful. Well, listen, we could go on and on. I'm really enjoying talking with you and I love your book and I'm thank so, so happy much. that it's out in the world. And um, thank you for having this conversation, Charlotte Foxweber. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks everybody for listening. Bye now. Bye.